Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 399 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Counting up to episode 400. And now. Skylab, The Astronauts, Part 4, Jack Lausma and Gerald Carr. In the previous episode, I quoted Jack Lausma quite a bit, so let's go ahead and complete his biography. I started out my space career with uh, the NASA in 1966, and the first flight I flew was the uh, Skylab space station, not the one that's up there now, but a prototype space station. I was training to go uh, to the moon on one of the last three flights, but we were so successful that NASA canceled those the last three flights, and we were assigned to the first long-duration missions in this Skylab space station. There were flights of uh, one, two, and three months long. I flew the uh, second mission of two months. Held a record for a very short time when uh, records are made to be broken, but that was way back in 1973. It was a prototype for the space station that's up there now. We learned a lot that we didn't know about how to live and work in space in large volumes, rather than just in capsules. We learned a lot lot about how to do spacewalks in zero gravity, which we weren't very good at because we'd been on the moon, and it's one-sixth gravity. So we were going to study the sun, and we're going to study the earth and its resources, we're going to study the medical aspects of being in space, and see if you can live and work in space in a laboratory uh, and do useful work for long periods of time. Nobody had ever done it before. We had some 60 experiments that we did in those three areas, plus all kinds of astronomy and student experiments and others. And uh, still we uh, were able to stay there for a couple of months. I flew with uh, two guys who uh, we used the, the old Apollo capsule, Saturn rocket, and uh, flew up to the Skylab space station, which was made out of leftover parts that were from the Apollo program. We were living in the hydrogen tank of the third stage of the moon rocket, outfitted for us to live in, and we were just about to see if we could do it. We had lots of great training in lots of areas, and and medicine and our earth resources and astronomy and all those particular areas and emergency medicine in the event that we had to do that. Alan Owen, Alan had been the, uh, was the commander and he was the uh, uh, second or fourth man on the moon on Apollo 12 on the second flight, so he was the commander. Uh, my other colleague was a scientist named Owen Garriott, a, a PhD in electronics from the University of Stanford. And so the three of us set out and uh, made a successful flight. One funny story from that, we'll be on, uh, on with it was that uh, on the Skylab space station, it was, it was launched at first with nobody in it. And the uh, astronauts went up to it for one, two, and three months on separate rockets to rendezvous with it and to dock with it and then to live in it. 
But all the supplies, all the food, all the clothing, all the soap and all the water and uh, all the experimental equipment, film and so forth, was sent up on the first unmanned, uh, unhuman un vehicle, uh, the Skylar Space Station on a Saturn V rocket. So everything was rationed for these three crews for these uh, one, two, and uh, three months durations. And uh, we weren't allowed to get into someone else's stuff, and they weren't allowed to get into ours. And uh, so uh, everything was uh, uh, controlled very closely by those who were watching what we did on the ground. And we had, uh, for example, uh, we rationed our clothing. And now our, our outer clothing, like uh, outer garments, uh, we would wear them for two weeks. And then we would uh, jettison them in, down into our holding tank and uh, put on a new set. Our underwear, however, we uh, changed every other day, which was a good deal. Um, it turned out that our mission was supposed to be 56 days long. Well, when it came to the 56th day, it was clear we weren't going to be over the X in the water where the um, recovery crew was waiting for us, and we had to wait three more days. And so you can imagine that uh, then we had to obviously get into somebody else's clothing. And um, that was disallowed. We didn't even think about it. But the ground, they're paid to keep track of these things. And they said, uh, look, you're going to uh, have to have uh, uh, two extra sets of underwear on the 56th day, and uh, um, you're uh, overstaying your leave. But we'll figure out the answer to the problem. And uh, on the 58th day, the, uh, the answer to the problem came up. And it was in those days when we had jokes, good news and bad news. There are a few of us that remember good news and bad news jokes. The good news is, you're going to get to change your underwear today. <laughs> the bad news is, Al, you change with Jack, Jack, you change with Owen. <laughs> uh, in the space flight, you can never lose your sense of humor. But something's always going wrong, and uh, fortunately you have the ground there to catch you. Jack Robert Lausma was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan on February 29, 1936. He is of Dutch descent. His father's name was spelled L-O-U-W-S-M-A, but he decided to remove the W off his son's birth certificate to make the name easier to spell. Jack graduated from Angel Elementary School, Tapan Middle School, and Pioneer High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1954. Lousma was a Boy Scout and earned the rank of Tenderfoot. Similarly to many members of the early astronaut groups, Lousma wasn't always going to be a pilot. Of course, he loved airplanes as a child, building models and going out to watch them land and take off, and he had two cousins who were pilots and still remembers the time one of them flew a jet over his farm so low he could almost see his eyeballs. But Lausma wasn't going to be a pilot. Throughout high school and into college, Jack planned to be a businessman. However, that changed during his sophomore year when he realized he just couldn't understand the business classes and thus decided to change his major to engineering. Furthermore, since he was going into engineering and he did love airplanes, he decided to enroll at the University of Michigan, which had a great aeronautical engineering program. Lausma received a Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Michigan in 1959. 
He even played on the football team as a backup quarterback until an elbow injury ended his career. But while he was completing his bachelor's degree, Jack was exposed to quite a bit of movie footage of fast-flying jet airplanes. And so, he decided the best thing for an engineer who planned to design planes would be to learn to fly them as well. However, this was not as easy as it seems. Lausma was turned down by the Air Force and Navy because he was married. But he discovered that the Marines had plenty of airplanes and they had a program that would accept married people. Lausma became a United States Marine Corps officer in 1959 and received his aviator wings in 1960 after completing training at the Naval Air Training Command. At this time, Jack decided he wanted to make a career of the Marines. Lausma went on to attend the Naval Postgraduate School, earning a master's degree in aeronautical engineering in 1965. While Lausma was earning his master's, he was first assigned to the Marine All-Weather Attack Squadron 224, or VMA-224, Second Marine Aircraft Wing as an attack pilot and later served with VMA-224 First Marine Air Wing at Marine Corps Air Station Iwakuni, Japan. He was a reconnaissance pilot with Marine Composite Jamming Squadron, or VMCJ-2, Second Marine Aircraft Wing at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, North Carolina. In total, Lausma logged 7,000 hours of flight time, including 700 hours in general aviation aircraft, 1,619 hours in space, 4,500 hours in jet aircraft, and 240 hours in helicopters. By this time, April of 1965, after completing his master's degree, Jack had reached the point where he was starting to look for new challenges. It was then he heard that NASA was selecting its fifth group of astronauts, and he decided that would be perfect for him. However, Jack was a little tall for an astronaut and his application process was nearly cut short by the requirement that candidates not be taller than six feet. According to his last flight physical, Lausma was six feet one. The Marine Corps, which screened his astronaut application, agreed to give him a special measurement by his flight surgeon. Miraculously, this special measurement came out to be five feet 11 and 7 eighths inches. Lausma admitted privately that he was really 5 foot 13 inches, but he didn't tell anybody. While at NASA, Lausma served as a member of the astronaut support crews for the Apollo 9, 10, and 13 missions. He was the Capcom recipient of the Houston We've Had a Problem message from Apollo 13. He would have likely been the command module pilot or lunar module pilot for Apollo 20 if it hadn't been canceled. Lausma's most notable mission was as the pilot for Skylab 3 from July 28th to September 25th, 1973. 
The crew on this 59 and one half day flight also included Alan Bean, spacecraft commander, and Owen K. Garriott as a science pilot. The crew installed six replacement rate gyroscopes used for attitude control of the spacecraft and a twin pole sunshade used for thermal control. And they repaired nine major experiment or operational equipment items. Skylab 3 accomplished all its mission goals while completing 858 revolutions of the Earth and traveling some 39,300,000 kilometers in orbit. They devoted 305 man-hours to extensive solar observations from above the atmosphere, which included viewing two major solar flares and numerous smaller flares and coronal transients. Also acquired in return to Earth were 16,000 photographs and 29 kilometers of magnetic tape documenting Earth resources observations. The crew completed 333 medical experiment performances and obtained valuable data on the effects of extended weightlessness on humans. Lausma spent 11 hours on two spacewalks outside the Skylab space station. Skylab 3 ended with a Pacific Ocean splashdown and recovery by the USS New Orleans. Owen Garrett noted that at the time of their Skylab flight, Lausma had only had nine birthdays since he was born on February 29th, adding, quote, But the Marine acts in a much more mature manner, and if there ever was a true all-American boy, in quite a positive sense, this is your man, end quote. After Skylab, Lausma served as backup docking module pilot of the United States flight crew for the Apollo-Soyuz test project mission, which was completed successfully in July 1975. Then Lausma moved on to the shuttle. He was originally selected as the pilot of the two-man crew of STS-2, alongside Commander Fred Hayes. This was a planned mission scheduled to launch in mid-1979, which was intended to use the teleoperator retrieval system to boost the orbit of Skylab to allow for the station's potential further use. This mission was eventually scrubbed, owing to delays in getting the shuttle system ready for flight. As a result, following Fred Hayes' decision to leave NASA, Lausma was named as commander of STS-3. STS-3 was the third orbital test flight of the Space Shuttle Columbia, launched from the Kennedy Space Center, Florida, on March 22, 1982, into a 290-kilometer circular orbit above the Earth. Lausma was the spacecraft commander, and C. Gordon Fullerton was the pilot on this eight-day mission. Major flight test objectives included exposing Columbia to extremes in thermal stress and the first use of the 15-meter remote manipulator system to grapple and maneuver a payload in space. The crew also operated several scientific experiments in the orbiter's cabin and on the OSS-1 pallet in the payload bay. 
Columbia responded favorably to the thermal test and was found to be better than expected as a scientific platform. The crew accomplished almost all the mission objectives assigned and after one day delay due to bad weather, landed on the lake bed at White Sands, New Mexico on March 30, 1982, the only shuttle flight to land there. Columbia traveled 5.5 million kilometers during 129.9 orbits and mission duration was 192 hours, 4 minutes, 49 seconds. Lousma finally left NASA on October 1, 1983 and retired from the Marine Corps on November 1, 1983. Next, Lousma tried his luck at politics. A Republican, Lousma lost the 1984 United States Senate election in Michigan against incumbent Carl Levin, receiving 47% of the vote. The astronaut politician survived a bitter primary fight against former Republican Congressman Jim Dunn to capture the nomination with 63% of the vote. Ronald Reagan's landside re-election was a boon to Lousma, but he was hurt late in the campaign when video surfaced of him telling a group of Japanese auto manufacturers that his family owned a Toyota car. In his personal life, Jack married Gracia Kay in 1956. They have four children, Timothy, born 1963, Matthew, born 1966, Mary, born 1968, and Joseph, born in 1980. The Lousmans were longtime residents of C.O. Township near Ann Arbor, Michigan, but Jack and Gracia finally moved to Texas in September of 2013. Lousma earned numerous awards and honors. Here are a few. Lousma was awarded the Johnson Space Center Certificate of Commendation in 1970, two NASA Distinguished Service Medals, one in 1973 and one in 1982, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal and Navy Astronaut Wings in 1974, the City of Chicago Gold Medal in 1974, the Marine Corps Aviation Association's Exceptional Achievement Award in 1974, the VM Kamarov Diploma for 1973, the AIAA Octave Chanute Award for 1975, the AAS Flight Achievement Award for 1974, the Collier Trophy and Goddard Award that all Skylab astronauts were given, Lousma was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1982. He was inducted in the Michigan Aviation Hall of Fame in 1989. He was one of 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. He was presented with an honorary doctorate of astronautical science from the University of Michigan in 1973 an honorary doctorate of science from Hope College in 1982, an honorary doctorate of science in business administration from Cleary College in 1986, and an honorary doctorate from Sterling College in 1988. Okay, let's move on to our next Skylab astronaut, Jerry Carr. Hello, I'm uh, Jerry Carr. I was the commander of Skylab 4, uh, the third manned mission 
uh, of the Skylab program, which flew back in uh, uh, the 1973-74 time frame. Our mission flew from uh, November of 73 until February of 74. This uh, S-1B, Saturn S-1B behind me, is the vehicle uh, that we flew on to uh, get into orbit so that we could rendezvous and dock with the Skylab vehicle. It has eight engines, and I remember that we were lying in the couches uh, probably about two minutes before liftoff, and all three of us started kind of laughing because uh, we were so excited that we were going to go finally. We'd been working together for something like seven and a half years to get ready to, to fly in space. It's pretty bumpy, it gets pretty noisy, and uh, uh, as you're moving up, uh, once you get clear of the speed of sound, uh, things get a little bit quieter. Bill described it as the sounds you hear after uh, things quiet down. Uh, it's the sound of all of the fluids rushing through the uh, pipes going to the, uh, the engines. As we uh, uh, got on up into the, the end of the uh, first stage of the booster, uh, when it shut down, of course, we're thrown forward into the end of the straps and we find all of those things that are not supposed to be in the spacecraft, like washers, nuts, uh, a little piece of wire or something, those all float up from below and it makes you wonder just how clean the clean room was. Uh, we uh, are floating around there along with all the debris. We usually try to grab as much of the debris as we can and put it away, but you heard a, a, an explosion all of a sudden back there and the thought was, oh boy, I hope that's uh, what's supposed to be happening back there. Um, that's the staging. You go into the second stage boosting and you're squashed back in your seat. Things get uh, a lot smoother at that time. It's a good ride. We really enjoyed it. 11 minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, we were in orbit and uh, it took us another eight or so hours to rendezvous and dock with the uh, Skylab workshop. Gerald Paul Carr was born in Denver, Colorado on August 22, 1932, but he was raised in Santa Ana, California, which he considered his hometown. He was the son of Thomas E. Carr and Freda Wright Carr. He was active in the Boy Scouts of America, where he achieved the rank of Eagle Scout. Carr's path to becoming an astronaut began with a love of aeronautics developed in his youth. That interest was first spurred during World War II when he would spot airplanes, including experimental aircraft, flying overhead through the Southern California sky. He and a friend would ride bicycles 14 miles to the airport on Saturdays where they would spend the entire morning washing airplanes. In compensation for his efforts, he would be paid with a 20-minute flight. During his senior year in high school, Jerry became involved in the Naval Reserve. He was assigned to a fighter jet and given the responsibility of keeping it clean and checking the fuel and fluid levels. Carr graduated from Santa Ana High School in 1950. After high school, Carr attended the University of Southern California through the Naval ROTC and earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering in 1954. He was a member of the Tau Kappa Epsilon fraternity. Following his graduation, Carr began his military service with the U.S. Navy and in 1950 he was appointed a midshipman with the Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps, D-3. 
detachment at the University of Southern California. Upon graduation in 1954, he received his commission in the U.S. Marine Corps and subsequently reported to the basic school at Marine Corps Base Quantico, Virginia. Carr received flight training at Naval Air Station Pensacola, Florida and Naval Air Station Kingsville, Texas and was then assigned to the VMF All-Weather 114 where he gained experience in the F-9F Cougar and F-6A Skyray. After five years of service, Jerry was selected for the Naval Postgraduate School, where he earned a second bachelor's degree, this time in aeronautical engineering, in 1961. Carr was next sent to Princeton University, where he earned a master's degree in aeronautical engineering a year later. After postgraduate training, Carr served with VMFA Attack Squadron 122 from 1962 to 1965, piloting the F-8 Crusader in the United States and the Far East. Other aircraft he has flown include the F-4, T-1A, T-28, T-33, T-38, H-13, and ground effect machines. In total, he logged more than 8,000 flying hours. 5,365 hours were jet time. In 1965, Jerry saw the announcement that NASA was seeking candidates for its fifth group of astronauts. On a whim, he made this decision to apply. Jerry was friends with C.C. Williams, who had been selected in the third group of astronauts in 1963, and he thought if Williams could make it, he might get selected as well. On April Fool's Day in 1966, Carr learned he did make it when he received a call from Captain Alan Shepard informing him that he had been selected to the astronaut corps. Carr was assigned to the test director section of Marine Air Control Squadron 3, a unit responsible for testing and evaluation of the Marine Tactical Data System. He served as a member of the astronaut support crews and as Capcom for the Apollo 8 and Apollo 12 flights, and was involved in the development and testing of the lunar roving vehicle. He was in the likely crew rotation position to serve as lunar module pilot for Apollo 19 and walk on the moon before the mission was canceled by NASA in 1970. Carr's next assignment was as the commander of Skylab 4, the third and final crewed visit to the Skylab Orbital Workshop, launched November 16, 1973, was splashed down on February 8, 1974. He was the first rookie astronaut to command a mission since Neil Armstrong on Gemini 8. Jerry was accompanied on the record-setting 34.5 million mile flight by science pilot Ed Gibson and pilot William Pogue. Carr recalled an interesting story when his crew first entered the Skylab. Well, when we finished docking uh, with the Skylab vehicle, with the uh, lab, uh, of course, mission control wouldn't let us get out and go in. We had to spend the night 
in the command module. So by the next morning, we were clawing at the door ready to go to work. Uh, we went in there, and uh, Ed went in first, as I remember, and he said, hey, Jerry, come and look at this. And I said, what? He said, come and look. Well, we went down uh, to the, the uh, uh, living area, and sure enough, sitting on the pot was a dummy with, uh, with uh, I don't remember whose, I don't know whose uh, name was on it, but one of our names was on it. Another one was on a bicycle uh, and had his feet attached to the bicycle. And uh, uh, the third one was, uh, as I remember, in the uh, wardroom standing behind the, the uh, table t uh, eating. So uh, we said, okay, those guys did it to us. We've got to find a way to get even. Once they cleaned up what the previous crew had left behind, Carr and his crew successfully completed 56 experiments, 26 science demonstrations, 15 subsystem detailed objectives, and 13 student investigations during their 1,214 orbits of the Earth. Jerry found one of these student investigations particularly interesting. I might mention that we had goldfish on our mission. And, How did they uh, fare? Uh, Should I ask? A couple of them were pregnant, <laughs> and so uh, we had them in little plastic bags. You could hold them up, and, and the goldfish were all swimming around on outside loops. That's right. And uh, because apparently they needed that gravity vector through their belly to know which way to swim, so they swam around in loops. But when the, leg, when the eggs hatched, the little bitty ones that looked like two eyes and a tail came out, and they looked at their parents going like that, and couldn't figure out because they, they, they were perfectly at home in their new environment. Uh, they didn't ha hadn't learned any bad habits. And so they were very comfortable in a weightless environment. Carr and his crew also acquired extensive Earth resources observation data using handheld cameras and Skylab's Earth resources experiment package camera and sensor array. They logged 338 hours of operation of the Apollo telescope mount, which made extensive observation of the sun's solar processes. From February 1974 until March 1978, Carr and his Skylab 4 teammates shared the world record for individual time in space, 2,017 hours, 15 minutes, 32 seconds, and Carr logged 15 hours and 51 minutes in three EVAs outside the orbital workshop. Though Skylab 4 was a very productive mission, it is often remembered by the so-called astronaut strike, which was a complete distortion of facts made by the media. Here's how Carr remembered it. Well, on, on Skylab, we started the mission with a, a tacit agreement to... Uh, uh, pick up the, the, the pace that was uh, being run by the uh, crew that was ahead of us. And uh, that was a bad decision because uh, we failed to take into account that you need a certain amount of time to accommodate to your new environment. And so we spent a good chunk of the mission running behind and making mistakes because we were being so rushed. And uh, we finally had what uh, I like to call the first sensitivity session in space. Uh, <laughs> We, we agreed that uh, we would uh, talk about the problem, so on one pass over the U.S. Uh, from uh, northwest to southeast, uh, we were invited to tell uh, the people on the ground everything they were doing to make our life miserable and uh, why we needed, to, we, we needed to do something. And then on the next pass, which was, uh, if I remember correctly, southwest to northeast, 
uh, the people on the ground got a chat, got a whack at us, and told us about all the things we were doing to screw up their schedule. <laughs> and uh, then we finally agreed, okay, we both got a problem, we both got to deal with it, so we need to change the way we schedule things. And uh, the first, the first part of uh, the mission, uh, we had a, a checklist that uh, had every single move we were supposed to make charted. Every, we were like a, a bunch of donkeys following a carrot. And uh, that doesn't do much for uh, your uh, initiative. Uh, we decided after this little session that we would uh, put a lot of the routine stuff that, that really didn't matter when you did it, just that it gets done that day. We put it in what we called a shopping list. And uh, each one of us got our shopping list every day, and there were lots of little things on there that we had to get done sometime during the day. Uh, and uh, the only things that were on the schedule were those things that were precisely tied to a place in the trajectory where we were going to be where you had to do it at that instant. And boy, did that loosen up the schedule and make us more productive. Our productive level went just like that, almost instantly. And uh, uh, I think uh, that got passed on. I know uh, when, when I was working with Boeing, with Bill Pogue with Boeing, we, we uh, uh, tried to make sure that uh, that got into the planning for operations on the International Space Station and on the shuttle. And uh, uh, I think uh, a lot of that got in there. Uh, but it's, it's just very important that uh, uh, we found that you've got to be able to uh, uh, have looseness in the schedule so that a certain amount of autonomy in the schedule to do things that, that really don't have to be done at a precise time. Carr's next major assignment occurred in mid-1977 when he was named head of the design support group within the astronaut office responsible for providing crew support to such activities as space transportation system design, simulations, testing, and safety assessments, and for development of man-machine interface requirements. Carr retired from the U.S. Marine Corps as a colonel in September 1975 and from NASA in June of 1977. Carr started his post-NASA career as a manager of corporate development at Bove Engineers Incorporated, a Houston engineering consulting firm. He eventually became a senior vice president and left the firm in 1981. He was a senior consultant on special staff to the president of Applied Research Incorporated, Los Angeles, California, from 1981 to 1983. From 83 until 85, Carr was manager of the University of Texas 300-inch telescope project. Carr founded Camus Incorporated in 1984, based in Vermont. The family-owned corporation provides technical support services in zero-gravity human factors engineering, procedures development, operational analysis, training, and systems integration. Camus was a major contributor as a technical support subcontractor to Boeing in the crew systems design of the International Space Station. In addition, the corporation is involved in fine art production designed by Carr's wife, artist and sculptor Pat Music. Additionally, Carr was a former director of the Sunset Energy Council, a former director of the Houston Pops Orchestra, and a former director of the National Space Society. Carr was presented numerous awards and honors during his lifetime, 
Here are a few. He was awarded the National Defense Service Medal, the Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, the Marine Corps Expeditionary Medal, Navy Distinguished Service Medal, and the Navy Astronaut Wings in 1974. The Marine Corps Aviation Association's Exceptional Achievement Award in 1974. Carr was awarded the 1974 FAI Gold Space Medal. He received the City of New York and City of Chicago Gold Medals for 1974. Carr was one of 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. Carr received the Collier Trophy and Goddard Award that all Skylab astronaut crews were given. In 1974, President Nixon presented the Skylab 4 crew with the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, the American Astronautical Society's 1975 Flight Achievement Award was awarded to the Skylab 4 crew as well. The Skylab 4 crew won the AIAA Halley's Astronautics Award in 1975 for demonstrating outstanding courage and skill during their record-breaking 84-day Skylab mission. In his personal life, Carr married his high school sweetheart, Joanne Ruth Petrie. They had two sets of twins and six children total. They divorced, and his second marriage was to Patricia Music in 1979. Carr died in Albany, New York on August 26, 2020, four days after his 88th birthday. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 399 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab, the Astronauts, Part 4, Lausma and Carr. Now, of course, you've heard our big announcement by now, and I'll just say, I'll just go through it very quickly here. We're coming up to episode 400. That will occur on October 20th. And since that is such a major event, we are doing a live YouTube question and answer session in celebration of that 400th episode. And you can access my YouTube channel by either of two ways. Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Look at the right side of the page directly below the orange donate button and the Patreon box. You will find the YouTube section there. Click on the small SRH logo in the upper left corner of the video. Do not click anywhere else on the video. If you do, you will not be taken to the right spot. Just click on that little logo and you'll be taken to my channel. If that doesn't work for you, you can search Google using the term Space Rocket History on YouTube. When I did that, my channel was the second result. Make sure you subscribe and click on notification. And uh, I also posted the link on my Patreon page, Facebook, and Twitter. Currently, there's one video on the channel. Feel free to watch it. Uh, I have about 
250 YouTube subscribers now, so there'll be a little bit of interest in this episode 400 celebration. We, that is Mrs. SRH, and I plan to do the live video on Friday, October 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We will be taking questions that you send us by email in advance of the video or by live chat if we have time. So if you have a question for us, it would be great if you would email that now. I think I have about 35 questions so far. We will try to answer as many questions as possible. So to, to summarize, you, you need to subscribe to my YouTube channel. Go ahead and email me any questions you might have, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Mark your calendars and come to the live 400th episode celebration on YouTube. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 219 are available on the Archive podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. If you are so inclined, my Twitter handle is working, and it is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can also follow me on Facebook if you like, and you can keep up with me on Patreon. The link is patreon.com slash spacerockethistory, where in addition to episodes, I post some extra things. I had a few afterthoughts. Uh, Of course, I apologize for mispronunciations. Sadly, the hurricane prevented Artemis from launching, and the next launch window, I believe, is in November, and I want to extend my condolences to all those affected by the hurricane. Terrible, terrible hurricane down there. On episode 400, we will cover the biographies of the final two of the nine Skylab astronauts. That's Weitz and Pogue. We will also do a Tang ceremony in honor of the episode number 400. I told you that uh, in the this episode that Jack... Lausma was harmed in his political career because there was a video of him telling some Japanese executives that his family owned a Toyota. Now, right now, that really doesn't seem like any big deal. <laughs> because it, it is, But in 1984, it was totally different. You may recall, first of all, Japanese vehicles in 1984 were becoming very popular in the U.S., and Lausma was campaigning in Michigan, where the Big Three were headquartered and employing a lot of American people. And people were losing their jobs because Americans were buying a lot of Japanese cars. Furthermore, Japan was a major economic competitor to the U.S. in the 1980s. Kind of like, not exactly like, but kind of like it is with China now. So to some in Michigan, that seemed to be a betrayal. The other thing I wanted to mention, and we will talk about this more when we get to the final Skylab mission, was the astronaut strike. Now that astronaut strike was greatly blown out of proportion by the media looking for an interesting story. Cars crew never refused to work. Being there in space, they saw a better way of getting the work done that was not so choreographed and and like every waking moment for them was choreographed. And they were up uh, about a month before they even had a break. 
and they wanted to discuss it with the ground because they were exhausted. And basically it was just a, a micromanagement problem and, and them being up on the station, they could see better ways of doing things. And once they corrected the problem of the micromanagement, like you heard on the, on the uh, clip, once they fixed the problem, then the productivity went back where it should have been. And finally, for those interested in our personal life, last time I told you Mrs. SRH and I were having some office sharing conflicts now that she is teaching in the office. I'm glad to report that we have worked out a schedule such that our conflicts are mostly gone. I guess it helps that we both have laptops. I I still may have to release the podcast one day later than usual, but we'll see how it works out. Over the past fortnight, we received two donations. And I would like to thank Jack P. from Washington, who sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level, and Peter M. from California, who sent in another donation and moved to the commercial level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 243. That's about level, I think, where it was last time. Our total donors for 2022 are still at 351, with an overall goal of reaching 500 for the year. So, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you are enjoying it, it's been running now almost nine and three quarter years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or, if you want, you can donate by mail, which works great for me. Please use my new permanent address, which has been active for over a year now. If you don't know what that is, just email me and I'll give it to you, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode's drawing will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Greg Rathja. Greg Rathja, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. My apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 351 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story by David Hitt, the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 400 posted on or before October 20th. So long for now.